Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who shaped me. If you're on the Kent coast, come and buy it from the Margate Bookshop, my lovely local. This week, our guest is the literary superstar, Tracy Chevalier. Tracy's latest book, A Single Thread, is the story of Violet, a woman who thinks she might be lost and stuck in spinsterhood after the tragedy and casualties of the First World War, but who thrillingly discovers that the Second World War might just be her time. Violet heads to Winchester and becomes part of a society of broiderers, women who embroider kneelers for the cathedral, and begins a journey of self-discovery and connection. As a novelist and storyteller, Tracy tells the tales of people whose status has often meant that history has ignored their humanity, perhaps most famously in her mega-hit, Girl with a Pearl Earring, about Vermeer's mysterious model. Tracy told us all about her battle for book organisation, reading resolutions, Margaret Atwood, literary death maths, and what it's like to be a writer whose work really has taken on a life of its own. Yes, um, we were in the spare room, and uh, we were away this summer, and a friend was staying in the spare room, and he, at five in the morning, he heard this almighty crash below him, and he went downstairs, and some of the ceiling had fallen in to the dining room, which is going to be made into a library. So um, I think it's the house's way of saying, get on with making it into a library and move these books in here. Come on, what's happening? So the, the, there's a big hole in the ceiling right now. Out of interest, what would your dream library look like if there was sort of magic, like builder elves who could do it in a day or oh, less, yes. just leave and come back, and there's your library? What it would it be like? it would be shelves that um, that go up and down depending upon the size of the book, so you don't have to worry about having all the same size books on the same size shelf. It's just like they they have this magical ability to be both big and small at the same time, and the shelves move around without you having to move them. And it's floor to ceiling, and you have one of those whizzy ladders that goes along yes. back and forth, up and down. I would love that. Um, and also just kind of magically somebody has put them in some sort of order so that I mean it's a little chaotic around the place the the books are scattered all over the house and I it's very hard to find anything 
Yeah, we managed to do that a little bit. There's a bit of travel books here um, and some travel guides, lots of old ones, which nobody uses anymore because everybody's on their phone. But yes, there is there, there is some method to the madness, or there used to be, but it, it seems to have gotten a little out of hand. That's a funny thing, isn't it? The sort of how those travel guides are, you know, all the, the industries and areas we talk about that sort of have become changed or you know less relevant because of technology and and I suppose with travel guides that was always a risk wasn't it because you know restaurants close and places change their hours but I love having a book still Mm. and I I will use these old ones even when we go someplace I'll look up the restaurant to see if it still exists but a lot of time to give you a map to give you a sense of what the important things you want to see are where you are in relation to other things that stuff doesn't change Mm. and I find it Maybe I'm just an oldster, but I find it really hard to orient myself on a phone. And I, f- I still find the physical page much easier. Um, I don't know why, but my parents have this um, guide to Bournemouth from the 70s. Uh, <laughs> now, they lived uh, not far from Bournemouth. Uh, but I was really, really fascinated by this guide to like, holidays in Bournemouth, 1972. And it made yeah. it sound like the most glamorous place in the world. Yes, and, and a book is going to stay around the way a website doesn't. A website gets updated yeah. and all that goes out the window. Um, so you only have the newest version. So you don't see that early you know, Bournemouth in 2010 is no longer going to be there on the website. It's all updated to 2019. So we are losing, oddly enough, although we have more information online, we're losing a lot of it too. Uh, So we're looking at this bookshelf that has bookcase that my husband had made when he was, I think, in his early 20s. And it's a gorgeous bookshelf, bookcase. I had it made. Yeah, he had it made. And got to 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 commission furniture in your early 20s. That's a big deal. I know, very sophisticated. But this this has in it, um, it has a lot of his books. Here's a whole shelf of books I read in French when I was at university. I haven't touched them since. But you still have and them. And it's next it's to really War and Peace, which I finally just read as my New Year's resolution last year. So oh. why I put it there, I don't know. And then Obviously because you wanted us to ask about it. Was, this is one of those no, gorgeous... It's been sitting there for months, I promise you. <laughs> It's um oh it's penguin who I just I really love yeah. these beautiful yeah. covers with the and then it's sitting on top of uh, the reader on the six twenty seven Jean Paul Didier Laurent which I have not read this my husband oh. read and then on it's on, on, under that is on photography Susan Sontag which I read many years ago so, so who knows let's get back to War okay. and Peace how was the experience of it was reading great. this. Did you love it? Okay, so I it. did love it. And I, I let myself, um, I gave myself a year. I said, it's my New Year's resolution. She took me a little over the a year. But I'd read some of it, and then I would stop, and I'd read other things. So I didn't force myself to stick with it the whole time. And actually, it's one big soap opera. It's all about falling in love and who you're going to marry or not marry. And... Um, And it's also about the war bits I found fascinating because it's not about strategy and battles. There's a little bit of that, but it's mostly about here are these guys put into this incredibly stressful situation and how do they respond to it? There's a very famous scene where Pierre, one of the main characters, comes up to watch a battle like a tourist. He sits on a hillside. Where shall I sit where I won't get into trouble? Oh, go sit over there. So all these soldiers are being killed in front of him. And it's quite an incredible um, sequence. And, and Tolstoy talks about how this particular battle, 
of the whole big battle, this particular skirmish is the center of this whole battle and the guys don't even know it. They are just trying to stay alive. They're just trying to um, get the cannons working, bring the ammunition up, take the dead away, take the wounded away. And they're just scrabbling around and they have no idea that actually whether they win or lose here is is really important mm. to Napoleon maintaining his hold on Europe and Russia. And that, um, but they have no idea. And it's it's quite remarkable. It's just beautifully written. Um, it's very funny. It you really care about the characters. Okay, yeah, there are a lot of them, but there's a a tree in the back, a tree in the back. You get a, a list of characters. Do you, do you have quite a good memory, or do you let yourself sort of refresh I yourself? I didn't worry about it. I the the main characters, I knew who they were. Some of the characters, there were quite a lot of soldiers in it who are pretty uh, interchangeable. And I would think, who is this guy? And I think, Tracy, just don't worry about it. Just keep reading. And it was it was great. So I think you have to let yourself have time to do it get interrupted by other things, um, rather like this bookcase. It has no rhyme or reason to it. There's tons of stuff in here. And uh, and that's good. I think that's what reading is about. Do I feel like reading this or that? And that's I, what this shows. I suppose it's possibly, this is a hard question to answer, but typically how many books do you sort of have on the go at any one time? Do you read across for moods? Do you reread much? Oh, there are a lot of questions in there. Okay, I um, I usually just have one book on the go. Very occasionally I'll have two. Um, I mean, I, I try to, to finish something, and that's one thing that we have a tendency not to do in this life is we start things and we don't finish them. And I have learned as a writer, the only way you're going to get a book published mm -hmm. is if you finish the thing. So you have to keep writing. And the same with reading. I, I just keep reading the same thing, unless I don't like it, and then I stop. And I've gotten much better at not reading, not finishing something mm. if I'm not interested anymore. Um, but more or less, I have one fiction, and then I might have, I might be reading something for research, a nonfiction book for research, and that's on the go, but usually one at a time. You might not want to answer this, which is fine, we can skip uh -oh. past it, but what's <laughs> the last book that you remember getting to a point thinking, no, I'm... I've had a go and it's not for me. Well, funny enough, I'm sort of on the point with one at the moment. And it's called The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, which ah. has had fantastic reviews. And I really like The Underground Railroad, his previous book. And it's it's a short book, The Nickel Boys. Um, and for some reason, I don't think it's that there's something wrong with the book. I think there's something wrong with me at the moment. I think this is not the book I should be reading right now. Mm. And and I'm I'm quite tempted before I get too far into it just to set it aside. It's very dense, although it's only like 250 pages long. It Each page you really have to focus. And I think I'm not in a focused kind of mood. So I thought instead of forcing myself through this, I might set it aside and read something else and come back to it when I know that I'm in the in the mood for it. So it's no no disrespect to the book. I think it's just that we all have different moods. Maybe I'm in the mood for The Witch Elm by Tana French, which is one I just bought today. Ah. Or The Water Cure by Sophie McIntosh. Which I love I, that book. Okay, that I think I might just, it might just take the place. So I have tons of books I haven't read 
And then sometimes I'll just see one in a bookshop and I'll go, that's what I want to read right now. That's what I'm in the mood for. Does it tend to be quite instinctive or is it a mix of that and, oh, I've read reviews and people have recommended this? It's a combination of all kinds of stuff. Uh, It's reviews. I definitely read reviews and I have a little notebook. I write things down that I want to remember that I should read. But, you know, sometimes those those notes get a little old. For After a few months, you're thinking, what is this? Should I really... And then you read a new review of something, go, oh, I want that. It's friends um, lending me stuff, friends recommending stuff. Uh, sometimes it's something I'll see on a shelf that I realize I got long ago and I never read it. And I think, oh, I think it's time to read that. And, and then sometimes it'll be something like, um, we just went on holiday in France. And, um, and I thought, I've never read Flaubert's Parrot by Julian Barnes, which was you know, published in the 1980s. Maybe this would be a good time to read it. So I did. And then in July, we were also in, um, in the countryside in Dorset. And I've, the book I've just, that's just being published, a single thread is set in the 1930s. And a month in the country is just post-war. And, um, and my book is kind of post-war. And I thought, I'm going to read a month in the country by J.L. Carr, because it's set just post-war and um, it's short, and it's about somebody who comes into the countryside from far uh, further away and, and his response to the community around him. And I thought, that'd be a great thing to read while I'm in situ. So it's a, it's a glorious mix of, of new and old and recommended and just taking punts on things. I'm really glad you said that, because I think there's a podcast called Backlisted. I don't know if you know that one, but they did an episode on A Month in the Country. And I thought, that sounds great. Okay. I'd love to read that. And then it just fell out of my brain. But now yep. it's back in. You need to keep a list. You have like a little notebook that you write things down in. I that really, because my yeah. phone just doesn't. I need to get back to hand. Yeah. yeah. Do, you ever, do you write longhand at all for when I you're do. writing books? Do you want to see in my office my notebooks? Yes. Okay, let's, let's go there. I did want to ask you, do you have a favourite travel writer? No, I have just read... I've just read um, Jan Morris's Venice, which is one of the most famous travel writing books. Um, first written mm-hmm. in 1960 and then updated, I think, in 1993 and maybe even more recently. And my next book's going to be set in Venice, and I just thought I wanted to read somebody who, you know, to, to their take on it. So... Jan Morris's later marker down on Venice, and I think, okay, that's the one to, to take all my read my measurements from. So yeah, it was great. It was I'm great. I'm desperate to ask you about this book. Are you? Do you want to talk about it, or would you like to? Sure. Read that whole... These books are beautiful. These. It is set in Venice. It's about these. I'm just showing you glass beads that were made in Venice over the centuries. They started making beads, they started making glass from the 12th century, but they were making beads for many centuries. And these are all different periods. And it's gonna be a big That's saga. Beautiful. So it's gonna be about a family who makes glass beads and where these beads go to. So some of these beads were used for trade for slaves in Africa. They went to, um, uh, North America to Native Americans, um, all over the plate to India, and were used. So I'm writing about about them. Of course, it means I have to do a lot of uh, Venetian. Uh, it's tough, but somebody's got to go to. Oh uh, no, you Venice. Go to Venice. Oh, I'm you sorry. Know what's funny? 
So many people have asked me if they can assist me. <laughs> Please, can I come to Venice with you and I'll carry your bags and sharpen your pencils. <laughs> so I'm starting to get glass and Venice um, books here. That I've, some of them I've read, some I haven't read yet. And that is, uh, it, that, what happens is about three quarters of the way through writing a book, I have the idea for the next one. And I always have it, I, I don't touch it until I've finished the book that I'm writing and then I, um, I'm editing. But editing doesn't take full time. And when that's done or when, it's, when there's space, I start doing the research for the next one. So by the time I'm publicizing a new book mm. out, I've got something else in the back of my mind. Like, this is my touchstone, this shelf. I just think, this. okay. Can I have a look at this book? Judith Mackerel, yeah. um, Mackerel, The Undaged yeah. Palazzo, Life, Love and Art in Venice. This looks gorgeous. Yes, it's about a palazzo that was chosen um, on the Grand Canal that was uh, was never really finished. And three different women in the 20th century bought it and made it into something. Latterly, uh, Peggy Guggenheim, and it's now the Guggenheim oh, Museum. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody this to me and said it's a great book and I'm I've just started reading it. It is really good. So that's my nonfiction on the go at the ah. moment. And so I always have something like that that's in the background bubbling away. With the writing and sort of knowing that you know waiting to sort of to start researching until you're editing, is that something you've always done or did you have to learn to discipline yourself? I I kind of did it by feel. Um so I did have to learn to uh treat the treat writing as a job and um and see it as nine to five and there are a lot of things you learn over time each time you do it you learn something else and I think I think the main thing is the consistency so that once I start writing I actually have to keep on writing I have to write five days a week and get a thousand words done a day although it that sounds makes it sound really rigid and it's not of course there are days when I don't write and but I have to treat it as something that I'm consistently working on. And if I'm not working on it, I'm thinking about it so that it has this feeling of flow. Mm -hmm. So when I read a book, what I really want to feel is that the writer is just ahead of me writing. Yes. And they're like two pages ahead and they're just scribbling away. And I'm like reading to keep up and see what happens. And, you know, I, I want to know more and, and pull me along. And to get that feeling of pull, mm. of flow... You have to write consistently. But they're near enough to where you are yes. for it to have enough energy and to feel like you are sort of in the same direction. They're not being kind of arch and like, well, of course I know. Exactly. And someone like um, Donna Tart, who took, I don't know, 10 years to write The Goldfin. She, she doesn't write many books. She writes, takes a long time. Mm. And so there's a big gap. And I think, how did she keep up the momentum mm. to write for so long, over so many years? Because uh, you, and it, it did feel... I mean, the goldfinch had its problems, but it did feel like it was written in one long... Yeah. And, and that's the feeling that you want to get. So this is where it all happens, sort of. This is my desk, the, uh, the computer, but I actually write by hand, and um, then I type in at the end of the day. So my handwritten... I have notebooks. Oh, yes, that's what we came yeah, in yeah. here for, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, oh, some notebooks. I was going to describe these for... because it's um, an aural experience. It's really beautiful. Yeah, so that's... Linen-bound, green... Oh, lovely end yeah, paper. Where so... do you get these from? Do you have a, a supplier for them? I, this I happen to get in, um, in France, in Paris. But I've used all kinds of different notebooks. I would show them to you all, but they've gone to an archive in the States. Okay, so this is how I write the novel. I sit and write in like 
long hand. But what happens is I start out here and then the computer, I start out at the desk and then the computer kind of, why don't you just check and see what's going on in the government? Why don't you just check your email? Why don't you just check Twitter? And so eventually I end up going downstairs and sitting on the sofa and I just hold this in my lap and I write. And then at the end of the day or every few days, I type into the computer or what I've written. And, I, you know, I edit it as I do that. And then when I've written the whole first draft, then I print it out and I work still paper. Ah. And does I that mean, that sort of process of kind of writing up and editing as you go, that it's, does that make editing easier on the sort of the second go round or not necessarily? Not necessarily. Okay, editing is possibly the most important part of writing. And, um, and so I do a lot of it. So I do a lot of drafting, redrafting. But sometimes a draft will be a very, not that much change. But probably from the first draft to the second draft is the hardest. Because that's when you got the first draft down, it's really rough. It's like still like a big block and you have to figure out what I always know there's something wrong, there's something big wrong, something little wrong, and uh, and I have to f start cutting it up to put it back together again. I but guess the first draft, that's just the making the clay that yeah. you're then going yeah, to exactly. sculpt with. Exactly. I must ask before I forget about this beautiful edition of The Wizard of Oz. Um, <laughs> this is the cover of my Kindle. Oh, oh, well, clever, eh? Very nice. clever. Yes, because this is ugly. This is like the first Kindle ever, the first edition, I... you know, first version of the Kindle. And this you can get at the British Library shop, oh. or you could. I don't know if they still have them, but they had all kinds of different classics. Isn't that great? Because what I love it, did they, is it slightly kind of... Yeah, it, it, looks, it looks very loved. And, and it's they, a library book, because that must be the Dewey oh. Decimal or whatever. It, so it do they so take safe. old covers, or is that a, a copy of the cover? It's a copy of the cover. Oh, gosh, if this were the real thing. No, this, is, this, this has is been remade. But it's, it's amazing. A, it's great. There's a tin oh, that is such a great tin man. It's gorgeous. So, um, so yes, I fooled you. Truly fooled believed. You. There you go. Also, so oh, that oh, Margaret oh. Drabble um, yeah, on the shelf, is that also a Kindle? It's a first edition. No. Somebody gave it to me. It's a first edition. Oh, let me get a look at that. That's amazing. Beautiful yeah. covers. I don't okay. think I've read The Needle's Eye. I haven't read it either, so I should. So this is a first edition. This is a first edition of Ann Tyler, who's one of my favorite <gasps> writers. Oh, Tin Cantry, Country. which is a, one of her first ones. $4.95. So, yeah. So it's that a, would have been... Is this what? 1965. Yeah. I think... Yeah. yeah this $5 the, for... 1965 that sounds like a lot and then probably the this is one little thing i treated myself to so this is original stories by uh, um mary wollstonecraft wow. this is the first edition and there it's illustrated by william blake i got this for myself after i wrote a novel called burning bright which is about william blake and i just thought i saw this in a catalog and i thought okay i'm gonna um i'm gonna get myself something something fun for once in my life and so yeah it has little it's amazing as well the way yeah, the, the type is really sort of almost like embossed on the page yeah. beautiful oh, really beautiful so that's my little special special thing um which i just keep there hiding away and then this is a uh, so i'm a big laura ingalls wilder fan and a friend sent this she got it in a you know like a charity shop it's not a first edition but it's 
gotten like the first. It's fairly early. It's early, and um, when you know the Loringles Wilder books are really famous for their illustrations, which are by. Oh, I'll show you. The ones that you'll recognize are, are those, which are by Gareth. Is it Gareth um, Garth Williams? So the ones that everybody knows are these. But before these Garth Williams illustrations... Oh, the Sugar Snow, I remember that. <laughs> before these illustrations were these illustrations, which aren't quite as good, but they're really fun. I um, really like so, those. Uh, so, yeah, different, very different. So this is Back really old illustrations, um, pre-Garth Williams illustrations, and so it's quite fun to have. So these are my, my sort of interesting, and this is a Dylan Thomas... Poems of Dylan Thomas, not a first edition, but I, I think it was one of the first. I bought it at the Strand. Gosh, in New York. In New York. Don't know when. It was like 1983, 1982. And uh, I had this very cool roommate, Juliet, who was uh, from New York. And I went to visit her. And I was a kid from Washington, D.C., and New York is really terrifying in the early 80s. And... I went to visit her, and she said, oh, let's go to the Strand, and I don't know what that was, and then I went, wow, so I thought, I have to buy something, and I ended up buying this uh, Poems of Dylan Thomas, so, so these are just the special old books up there. So they're the, um, that's the sort of your, your life oh. in reading times. Yes, yes, and given that everything else is so chaotic around here, that's the one little bit that's not chaotic, but they're held up by... I have some crazy fans, and I have a lot of crazy fan things here, and one of them gave me these, um, it was a bookseller in Chipping Norton, and she made these book ends, and they're a lion and a unicorn. Oh. So I was doing it, I was, when I brought out the Lady and the Unicorn novel, and she made those for me, and I was like, wow, and somebody made me that, they made me stained, stained glass, and somebody else made me a, um, I was at a literary festival. I was talking about At the Edge of the Orchard, a novel about trees and stuff, and they made this. Uh, they had the, the festival organizers commission different artists in the area, this is in France, to, to make a, an artwork in response to the book. So this is what she did, which doesn't really have anything to do with the <laughs> book, but nonetheless it's there. So there's, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot so of lots of people there's fossils, interpreting there's your words. You've got your own beer. I see. Is that a beer? Inside it? I hope beer. This is the Danish publisher. Um, brought out this uh, labeled beer um, for a, a, a book conference, and it's the last runaway, but on the label. But yeah, isn't that hilarious? I thought. <laughs> Great so yes, of you. I was trying to work it out. I'm glad you said because my Danish didn't say there is such a it's lot of it. stuff. So yeah, and then there's the whole kitsch corner of Girl of the Pearl Earring. So there's like the oh my gosh, doll, there's a Miffy Girl the Miffy Girl the Pearl Earring, the Knitting Witch, a wonderful woman out in Chester, um, knitted me her. So it's a Girl of the Pearl Earring in knitted form. I know. Yes, you just. Keep I think going. that it's amazing, isn't it that. Somebody sent me Girl with the Pearl Onion. So this is like flaked onion um, spice cookies that are a Girl with a Pearl Earring on them. I know. It's like 
You couldn't make it up. It's very, I, I love it though. I, that book has just had such a long run and people clearly love it. So uh, it, it has stuff. So, so that's my, when I was I having know, this, I have, um, sorry, I no, no, go that. ahead. I was going to say, because I've read interviews where you've talked about that, that odd, the phenomenon of having this goes beyond being, you know, a hit. It's sort of absolutely a phenomenon and it takes on a life of its own. Absolutely. And that, how, as the author, the relationship that that means that you, you sort of you have with your work and, and your fans and how, how strange and complicated that must be. It is complicated, but I make it less so by letting go. And I think that's the key is, is enjoy it, but don't, it's, it's not, it's kind of not your book anymore. Mm. I mean, it is still my book, but it's, um, it, it's become its own thing and people, when a book is published, people have their own response to it, and they deserve to have their own response to it. That's what being a reader is. It's, it's about the relationship between the reader and the book rather than the reader and the writer. And uh, I gracefully step back and let people have their own, how they feel about it. And I think it's really important. It's also just... It's self-preservation so much as, as uh, it's, I, I can't spend my whole life being, um, being that book because I've got other things I want to say and um, it would just be a little sad if all I ever did was talk about Girl with a Pearl Earring. I think this is probably not a good analogy. I'm not a parent. I know you are. But I wonder how much of it is like when a, you know, a book is sort of, when it comes out, it's a newborn. Yeah. And then yeah. if one is, I think... If the stars align and that book lasts sort of for that long, the book sort of goes through adolescence and can take care of itself. You don't need to be supervising it. I think you're absolutely right, but I would start the analogy a little later. I think when the book is published, it's our, like it's a baby when you're making mm. it, and then um, by the time it's published, it is pretty independent. It goes from you to independence like that, and so it is. It grows up when it's published. So your my relationship with a book now or even when it was just published is as of a a mother and her grown-up daughter and um it's a, a tricky one i'm always a little suspicious when mothers or parents say i'm oh i'm best friends with my yeah. daughter i'm like no That's you're not. not you're their parent it's different get yourself it, some age appropriate best yeah, friends yes exactly you and just have to be um it's important to have a relationship but that's not the relationship mm -hmm. so uh, I feel like the book. I have to let it go and let let it have let her go off and have inappropriate relationships with all sorts <laughs> of people. And I gotta go. Right? Okay. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. We'll be back to Tracy soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a read worth its weight in library finds. This week, it's Southern Lady Code by Helen Ellis, a collection of essays based on Helen's mantra. If you don't have something nice to say, say something not so nice in a nice way. Helen writes like the love child of Simon Dunan and Dorothy Parker, and this is an arsenic souffle of a book. Charming, frothy, but with real bite. When everything feels heavy and dark, it's a joy to be in Helen's cool, light hands. To make yet another food analogy, she's a verbal Michelin pastry chef. That's Southern Lady Code by Helen Ellis, published by Doubleday. Now, back to Tracy. Are there any writers who are still with us or writers from the past who sort of look at the way they kind of, their public life and the way they enjoyed their reputation or not and thought, that would be fun. I'd like to have a go at doing it that way. I think that Margaret Atwood is knocking it out of the ballpark. Mm. She's really, you know, she's 79. 79. And next week, The Testaments comes out, the sequel to Pamade's Tale. Yeah, shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And I think that she has navigated her career beautifully. She... She's written so many different types of novels. So there's, uh, you know, early kind of feminist work, and then there's there. Then she played around with. Um, she did a wonderful historical novel called Alias Grace. She's played around with science fiction, which I'm not sure has worked quite as well for her. But that's okay. And Handmaid's Tale, of course, is iconic, and she has been very graceful about its renaissance and the, the adaptation as a TV series. Um, and then I think she thought you know what, so much is being made about this. I think I'm going to revisit The Handmaid's Tale in my own way. So the te- I'm going to write a book, The Testaments, and that's going to be, it's not going to go in the direction of the TV. It's going to be something different. And I think good for her, good for her. And she's written lots of nonfiction and she's written poetry all really successfully. She wears it lightly. Mm. Um, and I, I, just, I just think good for her. She's really... She knows how to do it, and I'd like to. I want to be like her when I grow up, so there you go. <laughs> Me too. I really like something that Elizabeth Gilbert says. about. And I was quite, I was a bit of an Elizabeth Gilbert skeptic for a little while, and then I'm like, oh, I, this is why she is so popular and beloved. And, but, but I really, really like Big Magic, and I found it really useful. And she talks about how up to a point, if you sort of, the thing that you do creatively, that you love to do, if you put a lot of pressure on that to also, you know, pay for your food and heating and whatever that that can be that can be dangerous and wearing it lightly is the only way to to survive all that or you also do things where you let yourself off the hook and you don't have to be good at them Mm. so for one of my novels the last runaway it was about a quilter in 19th century america and i learned how to quilt in order to write about it and i really enjoyed doing it and i still do it i'm in a quilting group i don't do it very well I don't need to do it very well. I have to write well. Do I have to do everything well? No. So and another writer friend is a painter, and she said the, that's the best thing is that 
I'm not really very good at it at all, but I, that's what I love. I don't, the pressure is off. Mm. And I think that, you know, that's the way to do it. If you, if you have the pressure on one part of your life to be good at it, then just be a real amateur at, at other things. I want to talk to you more about Margaret Atwood, but I remember seeing some books. Shall we go Should downstairs go and, yes. and look at them? This is my move wall, but that is, um, you know how you go to a, a art galleries and museums and you, and you buy postcards and then you stick them in a box and you never put them out? I just decided to put them all up. So I, I had a lot of fun just sticking them in any old way, shape, or form. So there's just, it's mostly paintings from all different periods. There's some Vermeer. This is Vermeer. This is a, a Tom Hunter who is a, a Dorset uh, photographer who recreated a modern version of this Vermeer. So this is a woman reading a repossession letter, and she's got a baby lying there. And this is a woman reading a letter, you know, several centuries before. So there's all kinds of stuff up here. Amazing how he's got the light so yeah, mimicked so cleverly. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the ceiling is not going to come down on top of us, but <laughs> well, if it starts to crumble, then we will move away. What a way to go. I can yeah. think of nothing but a happier moment. <laughs> yeah, um, you know in Howard's End, at the end, when Leonard Bast is killed by a bookcase falling <laughs> down on top of them, that might, ha- that might happen here. Margaret Atwood. So these are all together. I can yeah. see lots of them. Um, yeah, I did make an effort to put some things together. Um... Oh, thank you. There we go. Um, we, we had this built bookshelf and, and I, a big bookcase. It's floor to ceiling. And we thought we'd both put stuff in here. And my husband is not keen on um, alphabetizing. He just said, put some stuff up here that, you know, you, you like. And, and so I just grabbed some books by writers I like. So, for instance, Jane Harris. I don't know if you've read... The observations, or Gillespie and Me, or Sugar I, Money. I don't know Jane Harris at all, but I think she keeps oh, coming you up. Should so Gillespie. Tell me about the observations. Oh gosh, it's been a long time, but it's about a maid and her mistress, and um, set in early nineteenth century. Very, very funny. Very funny. She also wrote a wonderful one called Gillespie and Me about it, with an unreliable narrator about a Scottish painter and a woman who becomes obsessed with his family. Um, so I've got that. There's a bit of Maggie Farrell, and of, I loved uh, Ann Tyler. Yes. I love Laurie Moore. Okay, so I love Laurie Moore until suddenly I didn't. Oh, what happened? She okay. The the stairs at the gate. The gate at the stairs. Mm. Which is it called? The her most a recent novel, which did really well, and I just did not get into it at all. Oh I didn't find it funny. And then Bark recently. Gosh, are we meant to say ne- negative things about me? I adore her, but her recent collection, Bark, I couldn't even finish it. And whereas I used to gobble down uh, her her books, um, one of them, the first one, it's, it's not here because I took it out to, to use for something. Self-help. Her yes. first collection of short stories called Self-Help, I, it was done in the early 80s. I just loved it. It was so written from the point of view of a, tw- you know, her, she was probably in her late 20s and just very much about a young woman, young women coming of age in these books. And then so Birds funny. of America, Anagrams, I loved them all. I like just life. read A Gate of the Stairs a couple of weeks ago and I loved it. Maybe it was one of those things where I was earlier talking about the Nickel Boys by mm. Col- Colson Whitehead, and I just was not in the right 
place for a gate at the stairs. But Maybe I just need to um, stairs, try it I again. This is we can't all love no. everything for and everyone. A good case in point. Three women is here. Uh, so this I'm is like one of the books of the summer. Mm. And I read it and I've, I, I only finished it about a week ago. I've completely forgotten it. Another, another big summer read that everybody was raving about is Fleischman is in Trouble. Uh, I read it. It was entertaining at the time, but I've completely forgotten it. It hasn't stuck with me. And I think um, I prefer books that do stick with me. And books like Ann Tyler's books stick with me. Uh, Rose Tremaine's books stick mm. with me. You know, Margaret Atwood, of course, and Toni Morrison. All of those kind of books. Sarah Waters, I just love her. Oh, Fingersmith, what a great book. What a great book. So there's a lot of stuff here that I, I feel like it, this is what feeds me. These are the books that, um, that are memorable to me. And are there books that you love that you come back to? Do you... I don't reread much because I don't have the time. I mean, I've because seen the there's of books. When, well, when you just, <laughs> when you just think about it, how many books come out every day, every week? And um, so and you're in that so stones, I know, waiting for it to open. <laughs> Take my money. Well, I, I always go in thinking, I'm not going to buy anything because I don't need anything. I have so many books at home that I still need to read. And then I find myself, ooh, I'll just get that. It looks so good, I can't resist. And um, I feel like there's so many new books come out and so many classics I still haven't read that to reread something... To put it in a prosaic way, in a, in a kind of horror, everybody gets horrified if I say this, but say I manage to read a book a week, like say 50 books a year. I'm 56. If I'm lucky, I'm going to read another, I'll live another 30 years. So that's 1,500 books. 30 times 50 many, is 1,500 it? books. Do you want to waste one of those slots with something you don't like or with something you've already read? Mm, you'll... Making me question my rereading yeah. policy. Now. Do you reread? I do. I have, but then often when I when I'm reading something else, at the same, I'm always reading many things at the same time. But if I sort of need a something that I'm that I know is going to be comforting, um, I do. I try and read Tender as the Night once a year, and I've I never read Tender as the Night. Should I? Oh, Daisy, I think you've just I've just totally gone down in your estimation. No, no, no. I, I really love it but people don't people really and I've, I've barely read any Dickens and it's a stupid fight I have with my dad who's like well you know why would you bother reading Scott Fitzgerald when you can read all of Dickens like it's uh, a really strange argument this makes no sense is, to me I've read a lot of Dickens and I think a little goes a long way I think you can just read a couple read Bleak House uh, read Great Expectations Read David Copperfield. Those three, and you'll you'll be and you'll really be laughing. Uchi. I wanted to ask about because I understand some of these books are your husband's. Um, how different are your tastes, and what was the last book that one of you gave the other that you were surprised by? Such a good question. Okay, John reads more nonfiction than me, though not entirely. He has a tendency to read a little bit of a lot of different books, so. By his bedside are, you know, literally a stack of a, like a, a meter kind of... high. Yeah. And, and he, so he dots around and he, he takes in, but then he'll, he'll read some, he's reading at the moment, London belongs to me and he's just racing through it. So sometimes he, and that's a, that's a novel. So sometimes 
he surprises me by just sitting and just reading some big fat book like that. And he read, he just read Moby Dick a couple years ago and I have not been able to crack that one. But by and large, he does, his books are more nonfiction and it tends to be botany and um, all kinds of stuff. And I tend to read fiction and I, and, and when he reads fiction, he likes to read lighter, funnier stuff. And I, tend to read all that big, heavy stuff. And um, it, it's, I'm trying to think of something he's given me that I've really taken to or, or vice versa. Um, Did you talk about books much when you first met? Was there that sort of early book swapping? No, I don't think we did. I don't think we did, funny enough. I mean, they've always been a part of our lives. As you can see, it's just chocka with stuff, and as much of this is his as mine. But um, oh, they're fabulous. There's a um, shelf that's, as I'm facing one floor-to-ceiling bookcase, there's another floor-to-ceiling bookcase to my left. You can really see the, sh- the shelves are sagging under yeah, the weight. That's all it's the glorious to It's all the art books, um, except the Vermeer stuff is upstairs, most of it. But there's a lot of art and dictionaries john's really into into like where words come from and stuff like that so back to margaret atwood do you have a a favorite in there or what did you come to first i i think the first thing i read was surfacing this oh this is and life before man so these are the 1970s look at them these oh (laughs) these editions are so oh look at this it's like yeah very 70s this is of a woman with a big hair and she's she's not wearing a top although she's she's covered with a a plant and um it's just what's the amazing confrontation of modern marriage that is margaret atwood's finest novel it's just the most shattering novel a woman ever wrote margaret atwood's surfacing even better than the bell jar vivid and gripping it's what can I we compare them. this to? So that's what I started out with, but I, um, I think my favorite is probably um, Alias Grace, which is I think partly because, and that is one I, I reread not that long ago. Um, I read it before I started seriously writing historical fiction, and then I reread it, and I thought, oh wow, she really is kicked me out kicked me into the street no she's it's just fantastic and it's also um each each chapter is named after a quilt pattern and now that I quilt I was really interested by that so uh, each section let's see if I can find one so there's a broken dishes in it it has the name of the pattern and the square what they're made of um so I found that kind of fun to do and also just to see how she did it um it's beautifully written got an unreliable main character and um i just thought it was great and i have to say i also love the handmaid's tale i mean it's kind of taken on a life of its own that's Mm. bigger than the book but um but having said that i i really admire it and it, it still frightens me and um i remember going to see her read and talk about it when just after it came out and um and I think I asked a question and um you know whether it's based on reality and she said everything in it is based on something that's already happened so it's none of it's made up um which is a really scary thing to hear in 1985 or whatever and 87 I can't remember what it was and and I remember going up afterwards and I had it as a library book and I got her to sign the library book 
And now as a writer myself, right, I'm just like, okay, yes, I know I didn't buy it. But now I have, this is a new edition. I had the old editions I've given away, but this is, yes, it's so gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful, the the blood red on the Ed papers and yeah, it's gorgeous. So, um, and I think one of the things that they've done so well is the TV series has made it into almost fetishized the look Mm. of the handmaids and some of the shots, I don't know if you've been watching it, but they have a lot of drone shots of the the women in their in their red costumes and their uh, their red robes and their white um, their white hats and they're um, they're always in some sort of patterns. Yeah. It's like you're looking down on this sort of weird Busby Berkeley kind of brings kind us of, back to quilting. Yeah, and then I'm just looking at this, and there are a bunch of books in here I haven't read. So this is so I haven't read Peter Carey's Parrot and. Olivier in America. Somebody gave that to me. Somebody gave me. This could be your year of the parrot. La Lacuna, Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. The Blue Fox by Sion, which is, I believe, Icelandic. Over the Wide and Trackless Sea. Who knows where these Ahab's wife, which is about the wife of the Moby Dick guy. Uh, The Girl in the Green Gown, which is about this painting. and uh, the, the Arnolfini portrait, and I, you know, there's just tons of stuff. So there's all this book stuff I've read, and then suddenly there's all this this, this rich seam of things I need to read. And I sometimes think I don't wish illness on myself, but what if I was sick for a year? Like something not very serious, mm. but puts me in bed, so yes. I could just read a book every day. That would be 365 books I could read. Would be nice. That would be a, if you have a like a your year of rest and relaxation, yes. but to. Yes. to read relaxation. Yeah. Other than reading for what? Reading for pleasure. Do you have a, how far ahead are you, are you planning it at all? Is there anything you'd really like to read this year? So every year I, I try to do a New Year's resolution that's to do with reading. And um, like last year's was War and Peace. And that was successful because I managed to finish it. At least in this February I finished it. And... My, this year, this year, I thought I'll read a biography every month because I have quite a few biographies and around that I've not read. And in, I, should, I needed to break this pattern of always reading fiction, always reaching for fiction. So I was pretty good the first two months. First of all, I had this big stack. It's up in my bedroom. It's my wall of shame. And... Um, all of these biographies I got together. So there's like a biography by Hermione Lee of Edith Wharton. And there's a biography by Lyndall Gordon of Emily Dickinson. And there's Karen Armstrong has written this, The Bible, A Biography, which is about the how the, bio, how the Bible came about. Um, so there's loads that there's one on um, by Sarah Bakewell about uh, Montaigne, how to reasons to live, is it called? Reasons to be happy, reasons to live. Anyway, how to live better, like mm. through Montaigne, and and uh, all of those books uh, are still sitting there. And but the first one in January, I read *Mom Darling*, which was about the ninety-nine glimpses of of Princess Margaret. And I tell you, if I had one of those to read every mm. month, I would just it'd be easy because it was and hilarious. And month, and no, no, and it was so easy, it was so wonderful and funny. And I. Um, being American, moving here as an adult, I was I was here only for the last years of 
Margaret's life, so I didn't really know what her reputation had been. So it filled in a lot because I, I watched The Crown and I went, wow. And then reading that was just great. And then February, when the I read the Costa Biography of the Year Award, which was for the Cutout Girl by Bart Venus, which is about a, for shame. <laughs> it's about um, a woman in Holland who uh, a Jewish girl who was uh, smuggled to a non-Jewish family and lived with them, pretending not to be Jewish during the war, and her parents ended up in Auschwitz and. Um, and it was very good. And then I just, March came around and I just didn't find the So I, book. I feel like you need another mom, darling, to get you back into the flow. I do. Perhaps. What would you and recommend? It's something I truly loved and it's an autobiography. So I don't know if that okay. counts. Um, yes, yeah, it's okay. a bit of a sketchy area. Um, Elaine Dundee. No, yeah, do you mean Elaine Dundee? Um, Life itself with an exclamation mark. And it's... I guess it's written, it starts sort of in the 50s. Oh, hello. He's coming here. Treacle. Oh, great name. She's very uh, vocal when she wants to be, yes. Um, she's um, <laughs> married to Kenneth Tynan, the oh, theatre yeah. cricket, cricket, I can't say that word, theatre critic. Um, it's all about their sort of their terrible marriage. Um, there's a bit where he gets done for, I think, getting porn in the post and he goes to hide out in Spain and everyone says you know oh these friends that you're going to stay with in in Spain don't tell them that it's porn tell them that you've been done for fiddling your taxes because that's far less embarrassing um and it's about her friendship with Terry Southern and it's really kind of I suppose going from I guess the golden age of Hollywood to the sort of later part of kind of mid-century writing and it's just really so 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 name droppy I loved the sort of this is good to thank you for that and I think you're right and I think that's the my problem with biographies that they just they just look so worthy Mm. most of the time they're really long they have a lot of notes it's it can be a bit and then this happened and then you know and then he went to school and this is what happened to him at university and then he went off and traveled around the world for a year and sometimes you you and that's why I was looking for stuff that was a little different this Sarah Bakewell book on Montaigne was going looking at his life from the different ways he approached life in his essays and it made a lot of sense uh to to it's just different and thematic rather than chronological yeah and i think that that's really important and so like the biography of uh of the bible i'm curious how the bible ever Mm. came about and i've always meant i've had the book for years and meant to read it and i thought this would get me going but it's September already, and I've had a long haul of months where I haven't read one. But maybe I could pull it out of the hat and do four, September, October, November, December. I think that would be, it's, you know, yes. September back to school time. It's sort of, that's a, I feel like yeah. this is a real new year. And then I've, I've been thinking already of my New Year's resolution for next year, and I thought, um, I read too many white authors. So maybe for every white author, I will read a, a writer of color. That's a really good one. And, uh, and so that means I'll read, you know, if I read 50 books in a year, 25 mm-hmm. will be of, and, and that will really push me more because we can too easily reach for the book that is, um, is easy to read, isn't going to make us uncomfortable yeah. or, or have to work maybe just that little bit harder because they're not coming from our point of view. And you may have noticed that a lot of the books I talk about are by women. I just... Mm-hmm read women way more than I read men. So maybe I ought to have a year of reading men. 
I mean, that would be... stunned into silence there for a bit. Daisy, I've never seen you look silent. (laughs) Like, what? What? But men have had it so easy for centuries. But I I bet if you wrote that as a non-fiction book, someone would snatch your hands off for it. I'm sure you'll publish it. Really? What? Reading men. (laughs) See, but that's... Reading my... Exactly. Perfect. Perfect. Pat, you got a lot of Patrick O'Brien up there. That's my husband. Maybe I'd start with that. Have yeah, you read it? No. No. I'm sure I'd love John is it. always telling me I should read Patrick O'Brien, and I, I just never have, and I don't know why, because he said, oh, but you know, the great thing about it is that once you've read a couple of them, you get totally hooked, and then you have like 18 of them to read, and it's it's just, they're just so pleasurable. I think he's read them three times. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe if you read a Patrick O'Brien, you could make him read any book. What would you get John to read? Oh. Oh. Gosh, that's a really, really good question. I'm just looking at my Margaret Atwood and thinking, what would... Actually, I think he'd really enjoy Sarah Waters' Fingersmith. Oh, that's Just such a wonderful book, and it's got that wonderful twist partway Mm. through, and you just go... Um, so that's uh, that's a possibility. Huge thanks to Tracy. Follow her at Tracy underscore Chevalier on Twitter. A single thread is out now, published by Borough Press. It's moving, thrilling, enraging, a little bit magical and so beautifully written, you'll adore it. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, Team Tome. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy B. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now, I leave you with Sid Ziff's review of Atlas Shrugged. It is not a book to be lightly thrown aside. It should be thrown with great force. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.